Peter R. Bregan, M.D., is called the conscience of psychiatry for his many decades of successful reform efforts. His scientific and educational work provide the foundation for modern criticism of drugs and ECT and lead the way in promoting more caring and effective therapies. His books include Talking Back to Prozac, Toxic Psychiatry, Medication Madness, Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal, and now Guilt, Shame, and Anxiety, Understanding and Overcoming Negative Emotions. Welcome to the Dr. Peter Bregan Hour. Hello again, my wonderful, wonderful audience. Once again, it gives me life to know I can communicate with all of you. And are we ever bubbling over with life? Well, in fact, I wasn't actually thinking of Diana West, but there she is. Isn't she wonderful? Uh, this woman, um, well, I'm going to jump right in and then I'll go back to my own book. This book, folks, is this book I mentioned once before changed my life. You know, I had been doing deep dives into psychiatry and the pharmaceutical industry, and I'd been talking about how how much fraud and fakery there was behind everything, how the fake news was so dominant in my life in the area of uh, trying to expose lobotomy and electroshock and also the harm that drugs were doing to adults and children and how the major media was just lying all the time or ignoring me all the time. I once, uh, I once de debated a lobotomist at, at a big meeting that was formed because of my work at NIMH and um, the Washington Post came, it was all in Washington, D.C., and this was really about my work attacking the lobotomist. And they actually put it, they actually reviewed it as a single speech by the lobotomist. <sighs> so the degree, and this is the Washington Post, they're health editors. I didn't know, I was learning. This is the 70s, folks. I was probably 1973 that this happened. And... Um, I was just learning how much the health people were under the sway of authority and not science, not reason, how much they were sucking up to whoever seemed to be the top dogs, which made the top dogs more and more corrupt. And um, this guy wasn't even a top dog. He was like a snarling jackal. He was a professor in uh, Jackson, Mississippi at the University of Jackson, this neurosurgeon. So... I really kind of knew about uh, corruption in my area, but I like to think it was really limited to the psychiatric field because as a psychiatrist, I knew there was no science behind it. And gradually I became less deluded and I began to see more and more the depth of corruption. And then this book. In this book, I learned that the collaboration, not with China, which is the collaboration I've now discovered and been working on with many others, but the collaboration with Russia between some of our communist, uh, uh, deeply embedded deep state people, some of them even higher up than that, collaborating really to support Russia over Great Britain, for example. Um, and this was mind blowing to me and it really began to expand my sense of the depth to which the media 
will collaborate with communism, with enemies of the United States for ideological reasons, self-hatred reasons. We could try to go into all that. But uh, Diana West's book uh, did a lot to turn me around and understanding. I felt like I was seeing this kindred spirit diving into a bigger, bigger issue than I had been diving into um, until COVID-19. But it, and the Global Predators, our own book, Me and Ginger. So welcome again to the show. Um, the book, folks, is doing so well. We have we thought we were going to do 500 out of our garage before it went up on Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble. But my wife uh, just got the idea that there was something bigger happening and she ordered 20,000 for the first printing. My, I have a brave publisher. Most publishers don't do anything like that. Maybe 5,000, maybe print on demand. And we have now sold out just from our website to 20,000. So I apologize that those of you who have bought the, the book recently, we've, we're doing a second printing of 20,000. Um, so there'll be again a delay. We're just learning, but we never expected this amazing outpouring of interest. Now the book is up on Amazon. So you can go and get it in two days on Amazon anywhere in the world. I don't know if anywhere in the world, two days, but you can get it quickly. It's selling well in Germany and it's selling well in Great Britain and Canada. So you can get it now overnight. Um, and over almost overnight, like in two or three days that it went up on Amazon on September 30th, we were the ebook was number one in political science and like number four or five in medicine. So there's this huge interest in what we're doing. But I want to focus now somewhat of a change for me in recent times, but very relevant on another of Diana book, uh, West's books, The Death of the Grown-Up. Think about that title. This is not a new book. I mean, this book goes back to, to when? Uh, quite, quite a bit. If I can, uh, I can read the small print here. Nineteen what? Two thousand seven. Two thousand seven. So it's well, not that old. No, it's not that old. This is only twenty one. So it's only four years old. It's a new book, folks. New book. <laughs> Death of the Grown Up. And um, think about what's going on in the world today. Think about America being so crushed and demoralized, like frightened children. Um, mothers sacrificing their children to the government and getting them vaccinated. Um, men, you know, uh, and women, um, you know, just doing what they're told in large numbers. Although there's a huge reversal of that now. By the way, my wife Ginger now is, is doing her own, um, um, I guess, uh, weekly, every other week um, newsletter with carries good news, carries a lot of good news about the people who are fighting back. So you might check that out on Bregan.com. Um, and also you can you know, follow us on um, uh, our uh, free frequent alerts on Bregan.com. You can get those into your mailbox. But, uh, but you know, this rings so true. So I want to I want to ask uh, Diana West, I mean, when you've seen what what's happening in America, did it 
make you think of your own writing and your own warnings about what was happening? Well, of course, just because that's the way I, I tend to see events in, in the same framework. But I'd like to congratulate you first on the success <laughs> of your book and make the point that one reason we can congratulate you on such amazing international interest in what this wealth of information you and Ginger have amassed um, is because the media and the politicians have lied about it all or hidden it or somehow suppressed those who want to talk about it. So what you're actually benefiting from, and we're all benefiting from, but directly as an author, is the fact that you have a corner in many ways on, on the book market anyway, in terms of actually getting this matter across in print. It doesn't exist. Um, I have never thought of it in that positive manner. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it ties in with so much of this because I would just, Going back to the death of the grown-up and how the book even came about, of course it began in some ways uh, after I had children. I, my, our daughters were born in the 1990s. And so some of the actual mechanics of the book come about or, or occurred to me just because I was watching what happens as you bring a child into the world and, and, and what the world says about that and how people treat childhood and adulthood and things like that. But I was coming up against nine, what became 9-11 with young children. And what, what uh, quickly became very clear to me, and at the time I was an editorial writer at the Washington Times with young children, was the fact that there was this, it, after 9-11, after the actual day and date of 9-11, the entire subject of Islam was impossible to have an adult conversation about. This was how I was looking at the world as a, as a young mother and understanding that you could not talk about certain things. You could not say certain things. You could not, as an editorial writer, you were not supposed to write certain things. Um, my column, I was writing a syndicated column at the time as well and getting a very strong sense of what, what people were supposed to say and what people were not supposed to say, which I am happy to say I did not pay any attention to, but be that as it may, it it still, it still was kind of, um, the gears were still grinding on, on both of these phenomena of, of the mm -hmm. culture and childhood and adulthood. Um, and then the idea that we could literally had to have these childish conversations, just, you know, it's, it's a metaphor for, for what was going on in terms of jihad and Islamization and the spread of, of Islamic norms into Western society, and what all of that meant and how you could not talk about it. So think about how that does relate directly, Peter, to what I just said about your book. Oh, there yeah. are so many more things you cannot talk about. <clears throat> um, when I wrote American Betrayal, which uh, came out in 2013, this was in a sense a, a prequel to the death of the grown-up in many ways, because in that vast kind that 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 dive into research i learned about so many things in our 20th century history that we were not allowed to talk about that the truth tellers were were paved over um how things were twisted and you mentioned participating in a debate that was then written up as as the other man's speech well, that put me in mind of, of one of the most, I think, telling episodes I came across in researching American Betrayal, 
which had to do with a conversation between George Orwell and Arthur Kessler, two of the great minds, two of the great anti-communist minds of the 20th century, when they thought about when it was that the truth could no longer be discovered in, in the media of the day, in, in, in the press. And they pegged it essentially to the Spanish Civil War in the mid-1930s, because this was the first uh, war that ideology played such a strong uh, driving role. Communist ideology played such a strong driving role in uh, the course of that war. <clears throat> and you had partisans of communism in the war and writing about it. And these two men determined that it was at this point that you could no longer depend on both sides deciding on a common truth because ideology dictated certain outcomes. So those Washington Post health editors had certain ideological outcomes that were met by the other, uh, your, your interlocutor essentially, that you did not meet. And so they just wiped you out. Well, similarly, Kessler and Orla would talk about how battles would be reported that had not taken place, whereas other battles that had taken place would not be reported, all to drive forward the leftist ideology. And just as a point of comparison, they both looked back to Encyclopedia Britannica circa 1920, when they pointed out that both German and British sources were used to uh, make the entry. And so they saw this as a moment where you could still depend on opposing sides more or less being mm. trustworthy of the other. And I thought that was such an interesting uh, observation that of course they would make, but this is true, Ideolog ideology did not really enter into our lives until after the, the Soviet uh, Union came into being and then going into its various um, subversive activities throughout the West. We did not really have that present in, in our lives or politics. And now we're at a point where that's all it is. And so the media today is simply propaganda and everything else, everything is propaganda. Everything is agitprop. And so we've gone from kind of a, a sense where people would be looking for the truth to a point where truth is to be hidden and destroyed and only ideology is served up to people. So that's kind of a, an overview that I guess includes both both works, but they are kind of all all moving in the same direction. It um, reminds me of something I haven't thought about in decades, which was uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls by Ernest Hemingway. And that is set in that war. Yes. And it portrayed in fiction such a pro-communist viewpoint. Mm hmm Yes. Do you yeah. Am I correct in my memory? Because I remember there were these wonderful people and a beautiful young woman, and she had been misabused by the fascists, yes. and they were the communists. And I don't know if they were identified as communists, but I remember reading that as a young man being so deeply moved. Yes. And so we see also the literature and, and uh, entertainment. That would be an example of that also then coming into play early on. Yes, absolutely. Um, people, people lament, 
you know, to this day, we're all supposed to tear our hair over the Hollywood blacklist, for example. Um, but what 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 is true about that period <clears throat> is that the anti-communists were were definitely blacklisted yes. in in all manner, all shape and form. But what they were able to do, I think, most successfully, the many many communists and fellow travelers in Hollywood, and I'm talking in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, they were able to keep representations of true representations of communism from reaching the screen. And so it wasn't so much that the pro-communist viewpoint didn't always dominate, but what was more important that was that um, Arthur Kessler, speaking of him again, Darkness at Noon, his famous book, novel, did not, did not go to the screen, that there were many other properties um, that would have been naturals for uh, um, Hollywood films. They had so many people in the different in the different parts of the business that were able to essentially serve as gatekeepers. So they did not present what was going on: the purges, the the show trials, you know, the 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 famine. These kinds of stories did not make it onto the silver screen. And this is something that one of the most famous Hollywood communists, Dalton Trumbo, who was a member of the so-called Hollywood Ten actually bragged about in the pages of the daily worker so i mean this was this mm -hmm. was going on this was part of you know how we were all shaped um and it was a concerted effort um and very successful oh no um, wonder i was a progressive when i was young exactly i was reading howard fast who was a communist at the time oh. he, wrote, he wrote wonderful moving books which actually had a lot of truth in them uh, particularly about oppression in America. That's where I learned about the oppression of African Americans after uh, during Reconstruction in one of his amazing books. And but I never heard anything else. Right. Never right. read or saw a film with anything else in it. Anything yeah. that would tell me there was another side to the communist progressive story. Well, it's it's interesting because I, I grew up very aware of that. My father, who started out as uh, more or less his first vote as a young soldier in 1944, was for Franklin Roosevelt. And he was definitely a Democrat who became very conservative. And he was a, um, he was a writer. He was a, a novelist. And I grew up in Hollywood. <clears throat> writer as well, television and so on. So I was very acutely aware of how politics were so important. Even as a, as a young child, I would hear arguments over the dinner table downstairs um, because my father was very outspoken and he was a lone conservative in Hollywood in the 1960s. Oh so I was very aware of, of how difficult it was to function in that atmosphere um, and, and how ideological the people in Hollywood really were even I mean I was just used to that as a child growing up so I'm very aware of how that all how that all worked and um, it certainly did shape generations and had a huge impact and I would say has you know just become more and more and more the um, really the air we breathe not just in in Hollywood but of course throughout media politics art I mean, everything is politicized, which is actually a very Marxist thing. When everything is politicized, you know, a, a, an empty park can be political in their view or a sunset or, a, you know, everything gets political where there is no search for, for truth or meaning or anything. It's all 
a drive toward ideological um, power. And I think we, I know I feel terribly, terribly the pressure of that these days where the state, the power is just, it's just in our lives to an extent that it has never been in America. And, you know, this is to our great, our great loss. But it's it's exhausting. I don't know if you feel that way. I feel exhausted by the state's presence, whether it's the you know all the different um, uh, rules and face mask and lockdown and regulations and this this forced forced behaviors, mandated vaccination, et cetera, et cetera. It's we, we never had to live with the state in our in our lives before like this. And this mm -hmm. is the communist experience for sure. Um, but worse, I think. I think it's worse, mm -hmm. given given the the, the upramp of technology and so on that makes and and biological advances in the medical world and pharmaceutical world that just makes it that much more effective. I think you know they the Stasi and and the secret polices of other um, other totalitarians, um, even Mao and others, they would be in awe of what the state is able to do to us now through these various. Uh, quote advances in in these technologies that have just made us, as you say, the prey. I mean, we are the prey, and it is um, it is it is it is terrifying, but it is also very exhausting. Well, yes, um, you know, I think of myself as getting it. I slept eleven hours last night. Talk about exhaustion, yeah. and. Um, I think for me, the exhaustion is 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 partly that, but trying to contend with it is yeah. exhausting. Trying to stand up to it, to keep it in mind, to write about it, um, is is exhausting. Now you are just so oh my god, it's so refreshing and energizing to talk with you, and I want to really emphasize that, folks. As exhausting as all this can be, <laughs> once you start to work with other people. I mean, yeah. I would I would never have, have met uh, Diana West uh, if it weren't for uh, my deciding to stand up on COVID-19 issues. Um, I was not the sort of person who would necessarily call uh, Diana and say, hey, your book changed my life. I mean, I should have been, but I wasn't. But once I got into uh, fighting for America's freedom, not just being conscious of psychiatry, but getting into fighting for America's freedom, then it all changed because all of a sudden there were people cooperating. There was hardly anybody that was supporting my work as the conscience of psychiatry other than wounded patients. Right. Ex-patients, right. former patients, current patients, mothers and fathers of children who killed themselves. There were no other doctors of putting their lives on the line the way I was. And now everywhere there are people who are speaking out on these issues. And so it's just wonderful to become involved um, in this kind of work. I want to, while we're talking about exhaustion, I want to emphasize that, that, yeah. I mean, I'm exhausted partly because Ginger and I just can't keep up with the, with the book orders, with the friends, with the wonderful people we want to uh, be visiting with and talking to. But nonetheless, the, there's a tragedy, this very dark tragedy. I want to connect it again directly to to uh, communism. This is the, this is this shocked me, but but Diana's work prepared me for it. But it shocked me. Everywhere in the book that I trace in depth, 
the background and connections of one of the global predators. I mean, it doesn't matter uh, who it is. Uh, it could be Michael Bloomberg. It uh, could be any any one of them, Klaus Schwab, uh, and um, of course, uh, uh, Bill Gates, um, or the top tech companies, or the top international large corporations, they all have these ties to communist China. And none of them are patriotic, just like none of those films that these communist writers or leftist writers were producing were patriotic, never pay, because they're globalists. Communism is globalism. You know, workers of the world unite across boundaries, destroy the states. And I just couldn't believe the degree to which we are again silent about communism. And that's where your work again, I mean, folks read it, American Betrayal. That's why your work is so important because once again, it's not that these people are identified with Russia. In fact, they made up a whole story about Russia, Russia, Russia gate. <laughs> blaming Trump for something that never existed for the Republicans, but was totally what the Democrats were doing, which was collaborating uh, with communists, um, but, but through China, through China this time. Well, it's, you know, but even on Trump Russia, I, I wrote a very small book called The Red Thread. Uh, the subtitle is A Search for Ideological Drivers Inside the Anti-Trump Conspiracy. And it was essentially- I haven't read it. Oh, I'll send you a copy. <laughs> it's 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 only about a hundred pages because it was essentially conceived as, um, uh, well, it was journalism. I mean, it's a series of of it's sort of my reporting as as fast as I could do it, like you were doing uh, the Global Predators book, but it's it's very small. Um, it's only a hundred pages, but it has chapters on the what I I thought was very interesting. If you go back to that period. One of the first big uh, breaks in the story concerned uh, Nellie and Bruce Orr, the couple, Bruce Orr being at the Justice Department, Nellie Orr working for Fusion GPS. I haven't said these words for so long, but back in those days, this was a big deal when we discovered this couple at the heart of this, this conspiracy against the president. And what was fascinating to me, because I was trying to figure out, well, who are these people? I can't figure out who Bruce Orr is. He just has a bunch of titles from the government. Nellie Orr was an academic. That meant she had papers. That meant I could read them and figure out who she really was. Well, it turns out she's an expert and did her PhD at Stanford on, on the aftermath, the stabilization of the terror famine in Stalin's Russia. And you know what? She kind of thought it was a great thing. She was on board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, Nellie Orr is a Stalinist. And I have the quotations from her work in, in this little book, The Red Thread, to show that. So I thought to my, I published the first iteration of that in the American Spectator on Nellie Orr, woman in the middle, and um, thought to myself, well, if she is so far on the left as to be pretty sympathetic to what was going on in Stalin's Russia, what about the other anti-Trump conspirators? And lo and behold, in the open record, I found that, for example, looking at James Comey's senior paper at William & Mary, that Jesus. he was a, an aficionado of Reinhold Niebuhr in his most radical Marxist phase. Those are the most important books that James Comey talks about to this day, being formative on his um, thinking, his ideas of justice, so-called. And this was a very um, 
social engineering, woke, to use our current phraseology, but very hard, hard left Marxist theologian in a theologian's collar. Um, and I go through the quotations from that to show this being the case. Comey admitted to having been a communist himself in his youth. So I was off to the races and oh just went through God. bing, 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 bing through about a dozen of these people and found that they all, including Christopher Steele, the British spy, they all had socialist, communist, uh, one world type roots or worse. <laughs> and so I, I wrote this little book and um, it came out in 2019. And uh, darned if people didn't want to talk about the ideological roots of all the anti-Trump conspirators, it became kind of a, it was kind of an interesting thing. People were very frightened of this, even though it was all open record. And it was a book I couldn't have written had I not already figured it all out in American Betrayal. But it's all ideological. These people in all these different phases of the assault on America, they are ideological. They come from that that place in 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 human thinking, and they remain they remain that way. I mean, it's 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 extraordinary. So, it's um you know it's political, it's medical, it's it's cultural at Hollywood. It's you know it's everywhere. It's certainly in the media. And then when you throw in all the money from China and the pharmaceutical companies, et cetera, et cetera, and all the global predator capitalists and all the rest of it, it we're in a terrible bind. So it's, um, but it all does connect, doesn't it, Peter? I'm blown away. I mean, um, you dove into the political end more than I did, and I, you're doing exactly the same thing on the political end of what went on in 2020, as I've been doing in my book on the, the health and medical and I think that um, it could help me a lot in my next book because you've just deepened the connections to China in a way I did not understand. It's just mind-blowing. It's amazing. It is It is mind-blowing. Um, it's, uh, it's something very, very, I think they're more and more open these days. You know, everything gets more open, but somehow people seem less less able to grasp it or it's it's almost expected um i mean think about think about how, what all the things that had to happen for our crisis today and i was thinking about this because you told me you want to talk about the death of the grown-up and i was going back and how i began it and what was going on and if you think back 20 years to 9 11 in that period Think about the the superstructure that that came about as a result of 9/11 in terms of the Patriot Act, and the kinds of invasions of privacy and movement that Americans um, accepted and indeed uh, rushed toward as a means to save us from the threat of terrorism. So we all were convinced that if we did not open up our lives to the government and and our, our clothes, you know, take off our clothes. Remember those when we first started getting those really invasive um, uh, uh, scanners and things like that. We we got very used to just divulging ourselves to the to the government to database. Mm. Um, if you think about the last twenty years of of social media that has created the the current generation, they got this. What had nothing to do with national security, but but. The, the current, the young people became very used to just divulging everything about their lives. 
on, on a public platform. Everything, everything. Things that people used to hold very close. Very mm -hmm. close. So we had those two tracks, right, going where we were getting, we thought we had to tell the government everything to save our lives. And then we were training our children to have no sense of, of, of space, no sense of private space, no sense of intimacy, no sense of personal life. Then meanwhile, yeah. we get all the computerized interconnectivity going on that now we, you and I are enjoying because we can talk to each other, but frankly, it's not worth what happened. We could not have had the lockdown take place, take hold, had not everyone been able to go on Zoom and log into their office, et cetera, and the people who did not have actual brick and mortar buildings who were destroyed by lockdown, the people who had jobs that they could do online, couldn't have done it 20 years ago. We had to go through all these sort of technical advances, social media, softening of, of our sense of self and security, that we suddenly surrendered ourselves to the government that I think had to happen before you could even imagine the success of this COVID-19 injection program actually taking hold. All those things had to happen first, I think, to get to the point would accept oh, it. Oh, this is brilliant. Oh, well, thank you. But it, I was thinking about that because that really does kind of take in the arc of the past two decades, which is when I've been most active as a writer and, and trying to kind of, you know, follow these rabbit holes. And, you know, you always miss the big picture until you can step back later, I guess. But they it all does seem to um, take us to where we are. Um, you know, I don't know how we get through to the other side yet. I'm still working on that. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to um, invite you to take a really deep dive into the areas that I'm just on the periphery of. This is going to be as deep as you get. You're talking about the communist influences and, and, uh, and youth. Um, Hillary Clinton's um, uh, honors thesis or whatever she did uh, at college. Um, where was she at? I've forgotten now. Uh, Wellesley. At Wellesley was on um, the Chicago communist um, whose name I had in my head a minute ago, but I've oh, lost Solinsky. And Barack Obama goes to Chicago at a young age, I think after his, maybe after he had his law degree. He yes. goes to Chicago to study in a Saul Alinsky uh, founded um, act, uh, you know, social activism group. Right. How far back have I, do you, do you have more to say about the connections of, of uh, former, former President Obama and uh, former Secretary of State Clinton? And to, to the communist movement? Yes. Oh, there's a lot to say, and there's a lot. There's a lot to say. Um, there's actually a section in the red thread that um, goes through the readings of young Hillary Clinton, for example, that okay. overlap very much with James Comey's in terms of the Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, there's also, oh golly, I'm thinking of his name. He was a um, Frankfurt School person who was actually a professor 
for the professor who taught James Comey at William and Mary, and he was someone who's I'm going his name will come to me in a sec. But it, this is also in the red thread because all these threads are not just they're not just vertical; they're horizontal. If if you know what I mean, the, she was also very enthralled to this uh, this theologian's work as well. Somebody at um, uh, oh I'm I'm blanking on his name at the moment, but it it these these interconnections are very purposeful, I believe, and certainly created a kind of pool of, of talent that would advance through American politics, whether they knew each other at, at, at every at every time or not. They they're very they're very simpatico. Um, they were they were molded in this way by various mentors along the way. Certainly we know about Barack Obama and Franklin uh, Frank Marshall Davis who um, was a very hardcore communist operative who was literally on an FBI arrest list in case of war with the Soviet Union. And this was the big uh, uh, um, presence in Ob young Barack o Obama's life. There's quite a long um, thread on Barack Obama that many authors such as Trevor Loudon and others who have, have developed in intensively along the way. Um, uh, Jack Cashel has done some wonderful work on Barack Obama's uh, background as well. And, you know, they they do all come together as a generation or near, you know, in a couple of generations. And it it's shocking when you actually start to um, just line it all up. You know, just the fact that the 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 line from, for example, James Comey back in directly to the Frankfurt School people is amazing. Um, I called the chapter on James Comey, um, an FBI director of the old school, cross out old, of the Frankfurt School. You know, it 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 really right. works when you when you look at this kind of pedigree. And Hillary Clinton, of course, is in that very same um, uh, uh, development line. So yeah, it's it's not it's not imaginary. Now, Hillary's first. One of her first jobs when, that she always mentions when asked, what did you actually accomplish in life, was, I think, with the Children's Defense Fund. Am I right? Do you, and I remember the Children's Defense Fund because um, I was looking for some children's group that would uh, stand up against the drugging of children and uh, other abuses of, of children by psychiatry and the Children's Defense Fund wanted nothing to do with it. Yeah. And um, do you know anything more about that thread? No, I mean, you're right in line with putting it in that, that, that very framework. Um, she also early in life was, was working on um, the defense of, um, a Black Panther uh, uh, defendant in New Haven when she was still in law school. I mean, her she goes way back in terms of a red thread with pretty mm -hmm. much everything she did to a certain point. And um, it's it, it's uh, she has a, a red thread, so I think it's a rope. You know, it really it really it's is. All of these people, all of these people in that generation, certainly certainly did that that achieved prominence in in recent years in our own government and they all seem to coalesce against uh the donald trump of 2016 for sure and it's um it's an astonishing um nexus you know it includes john Kerry and strobe oh, Car yeah Car carrie i did track a little 
Oh, guy's a monster. A monster. Anti-American from very young. Yeah, yeah, very young, and and it's it's um, Strobe Talbot being a mentor and a close you know friend of Bill Clinton. A I don't know. I don't know who that is. Strobe Talbot was the head of the Brookings Institution, but more importantly, as an official, he was the uh, State Department, I believe he was considered number three at the State Department in the Clinton years, who was spearheading um, the Russia policy. So he was extremely important as we looked at the dissolution of the Soviet Union in the early years of the Clinton administration. It was Strobe Talbot that was setting policy with Al Gore. And... Um, a one-worlder of the first degree, somebody who literally um, was also cultivated by Russian intelligence. Um, he was considered a, what they call a trusted contact uh, contact by the Kremlin. Um, another trusted contact, to give you perspective, is Raul Castro, um, Fidel Castro's brother. So this is how they regarded Strobe Talbot, our leading diplomat <laughs> with, with the Russia portfolio in the 1990s, close friends of Bill Clinton, close friends of Hillary Clinton. She relied on him when she was Secretary of State to help her staff um, her office. So, I mean, these people are all interconnected and they all come out of a, a hard left pedigree. Um, and they were all, again, you know, this, this book was written in the context of the anti-Trump conspiracy, but they were all united to bring Donald Trump down as an agent of the Kremlin, whereas their entire lives, they had certainly always been on the side of yeah. the same policies as whatever Russian dictator, Soviet dictator there was, um, to a point where Christopher Steele, the British spy of the famous, infamous Steele dossier, um, starts out at Cambridge as a, as a socialist who was involved in the campaign for nuclear disarmament of the day, which was considered by British intelligence essentially to be a Marxist front organization. So this is the pedigree of these people. Um, so, you know, it, it doesn't really matter where you look. You can look in, in the medical world, you can look in media, you can look in, uh, you know, all of these different institutions. We haven't even talked about the churches and, and so on. You can always find these cabals. And I would say that I would say that our big problem today, it strikes me, you know, we wanted to talk about the death of the grown-up, and it's 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 not a strong enough metaphor at this point, I think, because it, there's like this this vacuum in leadership. We have we have lots of people out on the field now, and, and you mentioned, you know, how great and refreshing it is to talk to all these people risking their careers and and more on the line. And and it's true, and it and their outpourings on the streets all across Europe and so on, and strikes in Italy and uh, people in France going up against those horrible, you know, brutal police and all the rest of it. But we have this leadership vacuum. And the person that really should be leading and is not is, of course, Donald Trump. Donald Trump is AWOL in this cause. Um, very, you know, disturbing to me, his behavior post-presidency. But it, 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 it has left this vacuum in terms of fighting the vaccine mandates, Fighting the you know the attacks on our society that are that are that are I mean we are in a war and there's no general um, I feel like there are ten thousand battlefields today it's it's none of this is I think when I was writing the death of the grown up even American betrayal so much of this stuff felt you know theoretical to a point you could have discussions and have panels and talk about things and try to try to bring people along to you know think start thinking this way but we're in this hot zone now. 
And it's all just, they're just assaults on every level. And there is no leader. The only person in elected office I know of who has tried to fight back against the vaccine mandate and, and highlight the, the death and suffering caused by these so-called vaccines is Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. One senator. I don't know of anyone else. Um, it's shocking. Uh, and, he, and, and he got very... Uh, I mean, his hearings were boycotted by the entire Democratic Party. The press and, wouldn't cover his hearings. And, excuse and the, me? And the Republicans are no better. There's there's absolute si- silence on this greatest assault on human rights in America ever. The greatest assault on our, on our, our God-given, our Constitution-protected rights, our every Nuremberg principle, you know, every single right is involved in this medical freedom issue, and there's no one defending us. There's no one defending the people. And when you talk about that in terms of the death of the grown-up, that's why I say it's not its not strong enough. It's this abdication of, of, of morality. There's this, there's this AWOL you know, on a mass scale in terms of all of the people. There are natural leaders out there. I don't mean to suggest that there aren't some inspiring voices right now and people we take great heart from, but there's no one with authority. There's no one with elected authority. There's no one with with guns. There's no one with law. The courts are, are, with some exceptions, the courts have been abysmal. Um, and, And so we're left in this situation where the juggernaut rolls on and you you don't see any battle line being drawn by anyone who can do anything. And so I guess that that for me is it's it's more than the death of the gro- the grown up. It's as if every institution had been successfully nullified. Everyone, from the church to the synagogue to the business world to the law courts to the certainly the political realm. There, and then every now and then someone puts their head up in, in entertainment and Eric Clapton or recently there's been an ESPN sportscaster has has left ESPN because she would like to safely have a baby instead of in uh, endure a, a vaccine mandate policy. One, I haven't heard, you know, it's 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 shocking. So we're in kind of this 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 uh, period of of, I think, um, breakdown and i'm still waiting to see you know this uh, uh, a a pushback a break wall develop i don't want to ask you this question but i'm going to talk some more about donald trump's abdication oh i'm happy to i i i i'm, never... I'm not happy to have you do it but we well, have to do it we, we have, have to do it no I, it's it's certainly i'm an original uh trump fan girl in the sense that I, I publicly endorsed him at Breitbart News in uh, late 20, December 2015. Mm. And I'm very happy to do that and uh, very supportive throughout his presidency. His, his um, mania for Operation Warp Speed to this day is unconscionable. He hasn't backed down at all. He has not backed down at all. And, you know, six months ago, we might say, well, he's still, and you as a, as, as a psychiatrist would 
perhaps indulge this. You know, he's still recovering from all of the assaults on him. I mean, what You're he right. went through as a human being in his four years. I yeah. mean, I still consider him the legitimate president of the United States. He's in exile in Mar-a-Lago. That, and what he's gone through, I understand, could really take a toll. However, at this point of the suffering, at this point of the quantitative death counts, which are approaching 17,000 by the VAERS reporting at the CDC, which we can multiply by various factors to get a much higher count. Yeah, conservatively, folks, a, a 17,000 report would literally be, uh, I have to close my eyes and say it, 170,000, because right. you just don't get... Uh, the vast majority of catastrophes like death, doctors and nurses and other people either don't know about after occur afterward, or they don't want to report, or they're related related to an injection in a parking lot, so you don't even know. Right. Uh, there's no follow up on it. So we're talking about large, large numbers of people being killed by the vaccine. It's just right. um, and harmed and maimed and in yeah. life transforming. Yeah. Uh, injury. He has to know, there's no way he doesn't know that at this point. There's no, I didn't know defense possible. So his continued pushing of that, that same vaccine that, and it's not a vaccine, but that same injection that, that the usurper. You know, he's been booed at, uh, I've seen him booed on TV. Yeah. And, and that hasn't moved to me that being booed by his own loving congregations hasn't moved him either. No, it hasn't. I feel that there's something there. He 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 has a script on it at this point. I watched him interviewed by Maria Bartiromo, I believe it was in August, and she asked him, remember, he's at his business was being a hotelier, a maitre d, a, a casino owner. And she asked him, what do you think about the fact that you are going to have, an American is going to have to present papers to go into a restaurant in New York City? meaning the vaccination proof. And he didn't answer her question. Oh, he Jesus. A, a, he went into a ridiculous statement about how when he was president, people trusted the vaccine. And now that Biden is in office, people don't trust the vaccine. And oh. that was the answer. And when I saw the question connected to the answer, there was just no way that he's not on a script. And he has, for some reason, a mission to push that vaccine, which makes me very distrustful of him, to say the least. To say um, the least. To say the least. And how long that distrust should stretch backwards, I I don't know. But this this is exactly, he is exactly the person who should be at the forefront of pushing back on the government's mandates and destruction of the nation yeah. through this. Because at this point, I consider the vaccine mandate a smoking gun on the government's complicity or guilt in the destruction of the nation and the destruction of American lives. Because the people pushing the mandate also know about these deaths, also ha have no excuse not to know about the massive injuries going on. So they are foisting this on us with full knowledge. Well, that gets another thread. Um, uh, we only have about six or eight minutes left, but uh, another thread is... Uh, it goes back to population culling and uh, and really kind of a death cult on the progressive yes. left. Too many people, too many people of the wrong kind, too many yeah. people in the middle of America, not enough in L.A. and New York City. Um, 
Uh, so that's a great point because you know think about it in terms of the people pushing global COVID-19 injections and boosters. Think about the people pushing it. Bill Gates, Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum, Boris Johnson, Prime Minister of Britain, and on, Macron, various oligarchs, the social media campaigns, and so on. These are the same people who are on the record talking about overpopulation of the, of the globe being the biggest problem threatening humanity. Or I didn't know Boris Johnson was in that place, yes. too. Oh, yes. gosh. This is so informative. Folks, this is one of the most informative interviews of my life, just as your book was probably the most informative book of my life. Or I don't know what else would... Uh, um... Well, Boris Johnson's father, Stanley Johnson, is a very out, uh, outspoken in this same push. He thinks that the population of Britain should be 10 to 15 million people. We're looking at what, it's got 60, 70 million people now, and I don't know exactly how you shrink it down, <laughs> but- They're Boris working Johnson, on it, they're working on it. They're working it. on it. Boris Johnson too identified, this was back in around 2007, he identified what he called overpopulation as the leading problem facing the world. Um, the royal family is noted for that position as well in Britain. Um, these are the same people forcing vaccination on these populations despite yeah known fatalities and mm -hmm. injury without even getting into all of the other aspects that scientists and doctors are learning about the vaccine, the heavy metals, yeah. the graphene oxide, the operating systems, computer operating systems, which actually I find Moderna brags about in terms of its vaccine. They brag about it being a computer, like a computer operating system. But all that, you know, is probably a, a worth another show. But but these are the same people pushing for limiting numbers, why would they then really want to? Would right. they then really want to save lives? I mean, you have to ask yeah. yourself. These are not the people who want to save every no, life. They, they, no, they're not. One of the things I want to um, just focus on in terms of the work that Ginger and I have done. Um, Trump, I believe, thinks that he created Operation Warp Speed working with Fauci and working with the head of NIH and so on. And one of the things that um, I found and that, that are centerpieces in the book, chapter 15 of the book, and, um, and also in the um, uh, chronology at the end, is that this whole concept evolved in 2015-16, mostly originally in the mind of Bill Gates. And he set up an organization called CEPI, C-E-P-I, that I look into, in which uh, he developed the idea in 2015-16, and uh, we have documentation of it heavily in 16 and 17, where uh, he was setting up an organization to work with the government. He was already working with Rick Bright of BARDA, who was the one who uh, stopped Trump from releasing hydroxychloroquine to the public from the huge stores. These, these threads, as you call them, are amazing. And the whole Operation Warp Speed was developed back then, that the government would finance the pharmaceutical industry in the next uh, pandemic, and furthermore, that the leading uh, um, vaccines, so-called vaccines, would be Moderna and Pfizer. And way back then, uh, 
people who knew in the financial industry were saying follow Trump by Pfizer. They didn't know what was going on, but they said, you know, that's where the money is going and getting the government to develop a process of the uh, the, the fast not approval, but the fast tracking of these drugs onto the market, these vaccines, all of that laid out in a document that I found uh, called the preliminary business plan of CEPI. And then in a document that we go into in more depth in the book uh, with a, a lengthy PowerPoint from CEPI, which is essentially Bill Gates and somewhat Fauci, and uh, not Fauci, but um, uh, Schwab. Fauci's in there too, <clears throat> dividing up the world where, where Gates proposes to who that he'll manage the financial end and you take care of the scientists and with who. And they had a memorandum of agreement between them about this that I found both sides confirming in different places. So uh, Trump was actually uh, promoting something that had been developed way in advance in preparation for COVID-19. Um, and they were talking about it being a SARS coronavirus back in 2017, folks. And the only reason they were doing it is they knew they could make one. That's that's It wasn't that the virus was dangerous. So there were none in nature. They couldn't find any in nature, any SARS coviruses in nature. So they were making them in labs. Again, collusion, China and the US, God, it ties it all together. China and the U.S. working together to make these uh, these viruses and uh, finally released probably purposely, certainly used purposely by the Chinese communists. And uh, so it all it ties together. It's a horrible uh, end note to our uh, discussion, but it, uh, you have a dog. Do you want to introduce the dog? Yes. <laughs> Let's have a little uh, love at the end of this. I wondered what you were looking at. Oh, I was trying to pull him in. Yeah. Oh, they've gone to find the mailman. <laughs> Sorry about that, Peter. Let let it end with real life. We okay. we have only um we have only uh about 20 seconds left. So I'm just uh we we have a little, we have another minute or so, but uh you know, uh, folks, this is Diana West book that changed my life, American Betrayal. And folks, our book, we can't keep up with the 24,000 paid purchases we have on our website for the book. We're recommending, although we make much less money, we're recommending that for the next few weeks, you buy on Amazon, you buy on Barnes and Noble, buy the book from people who will do a... Um, you know, they, they, they just print the book on demand so you can get it in a night or two. But our big, we're back into doing a second 20,000 printing to keep up uh, with the 24,000 that we are um, already, we've almost fulfilled at this point. So um, Diana West, you're a miracle person. Um, let's put our heads together when we're, um, when the show was over to figure out how next to bring you on. You are and you remain one of the most enlightening people in my life. So thank you so much for everything you do. Oh, thank you so much, Peter. It's just a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And, and my wonderful audience, thank you for taking so seriously stuff you're going to learn here that may be 
nowhere else in the world. You're going to hear it here. And um, just thank you very, very much. Bye-bye now, folks. Take us seriously. Take your life seriously.